they start out and they're with this is their first class or early in their teaching and they say does anyone have any questions or who can tell me what the answer to this is and they wait two seconds and they answer the question because they're so uncomfortable by the silence i invite everyone to try something out called the eight second rule the eight second rule is that you ask a question and you count Hello, Team Helium, and welcome to this episode with Bonnie Stahoviak, who has her own podcast called Teaching in Higher Ed. And she joined us today and really covered a wide range of subjects for people that are just starting out as postdocs and trying to break into the teaching area, and also lessons for people that are already full professors and how they can make tiny changes to transform their teaching and improve things in their classrooms. A few highlights for me were mixing the analog and digital learning tools in your class, also balancing the tension between planning your class out, which we talked about in episode 29, and what actually emerges when you start teaching the class. Another highlight for me was how to add a little surprise into each class so that you can engage your students a little bit more deeply. And finally, I thought our discussion about rethinking how to use tests in the classroom was very useful because Bonnie recommends that you think very carefully about whether a test should be used or not because a lot of professors use a lot of time on the grading part of teaching and some of that time could possibly be redirected to the classroom to much more active learning situations. Enjoy this episode with Professor Bonnie Stahoviak. So today we're welcoming to Helium Podcast Bonnie Stahoviak, who is a professor at Vanguard University, and she also has a website called teachinginhighered.com. Welcome, Bonnie. Thanks, Matt. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you know, usually with our guests, we start out with this idea you know, of what motivated you to get into what you do. And from your website and your Twitter, it's clear that you're passionate about teaching and academia. And so I wanted to know, like, how, what kind of path did you follow to get to this uh, place where you have your own website and you're also a, a professor teaching uh, other people about teaching? One of the things I think is important to point out is that I had no path. I had, I had no concept for what was possible. Even if I just think back to when I started as a professor, I didn't really understand what the different kinds of degrees were. I had, was a college graduate, but I didn't, I probably couldn't have even told you really what a master's degree was. I think I had heard of doctorates and usually the people I would encounter that went come through were not really equipped to work in the context that I was in at the time as the franchising industry. So I didn't really know a lot. Although when I became a vice president, the company paid for me to get my master's. And that was really my first exposure to this part of higher ed that I'd never been familiar with before. No family members or anything had received their master's or doctorates. And it it really was a wonderful experience to have that kind of focus on what I was doing. My degree is in organizational leadership, both my master's and my doctorate. And every page of every author would just nourish me as far as the work that I was doing. And I found that really invigorating. And I ended up having an opportunity to teach as an adjunct first. 
And I loved that. I absolutely loved it. And it really did help me see that there's this whole path and a whole way that you can teach that's very different from what I had been doing in the business context and the franchise industry. So, and then now I feel like I'm on a similar thing where <laughs> I've recently gone into faculty development. So my role has shrunk a little bit in terms of traditional kinds of teaching and now getting to coach and walk alongside faculty is really an absolute joy. And as far as the podcast goes, my husband had had a leadership podcast, still does now. It's called Coaching for Leaders. And he had had that for three years at the time and suggested that there really wasn't anything strictly focusing on teaching conversations for higher education at that time. That was back in June of 2014. And he finally nudged me into it. And the rest is history. So five years of every week posting an episode and getting to have conversations with these amazing people from all over the world. You know, on our show, we always like to put ourselves in the shoes of these early career researchers. And I wanted to ask you, as let's just say I'm a postdoc, and I want to know what I can learn as a postdoc to, that makes me, you know, what kind of key skills, if I'm, if I'm considering a faculty position and I, I feel like, okay, my research is solid, the, the papers I've produced are solid, but I want to round out the teaching portion of my CV. Um, what would you, if someone came to you and asked you for advice on that, what, what, what would you tell them? So the postdocs that I have worked with, and I'm going to give a broad generalization, but they're going to fall into one of two categories. Either they really need to become more effective in their teaching. That's something that maybe they've had stressed more in their careers and in their educational pursuits, the research end of things, but they do really need to up their game when it comes to teaching effectiveness. And then the other category, you have people who are wonderful teachers. They're absolutely magnificent. They are doing terrific things for their students, but they don't have a vocabulary for it. So when it comes time to get in front of an interview, a search committee, and they want them to share about their teaching practices or their teaching philosophy, it's hard for them to put that into words because they don't have the vocabulary for those effective practices. So that's a broad generalization, but I think that helps in terms of should we be focusing on the quality of our teaching and pursuing more teaching excellence or that part's actually working out really well, but I need a vocabulary for it. So let's say I'm in the first category. So I'm, I need to work on my teaching effectiveness, as you say. So what's a, what's a first step that I can take? I mean, aside from trying to get, uh, let's say going to my advisor and saying, can I guess, can I guess lecture in your lecture is probably a bad word, but you know, can I help you with your course? Um, maybe that, that's the first thing that I think of. Is that, is that a good first step or is it more about getting connected with, uh, folks that can actually assess you uh, on your teaching effectiveness. This conversation just came up on Twitter the other day, although it was a little bit of a different dichotomy. In that case, they were saying, am I better off to spend my time in teaching capacities or am I better off to pursuing research opportunities? And of course, as you might expect, the answer was do both. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Um, which, it's tough. It's tough. But I do think having that experience, any chance that you can get to be engaging with people in the classroom is going to help you. Because instead of speaking about things in hypothetical ways, I, I find that in terms of just interviewing people for jobs, you can really discern people that have done this before 
experienced these challenges before, been able to overcome them, or at least are familiar with, oh yeah, that can happen in a class. The the ability to speak about it in a non-hypothetical way is really good. So yes, definitely getting in classes, facilitating learning, that's going to help really shape that. But again, there are other priorities as well. And research is also important. Yeah, I think that in a lot of cases, people aren't thinking about it as a, a long-term investment, right? Because if you're, at least is my opinion, right? If you're really serious about it, having a successful career in academia, this is a piece that you certainly need to work on. And it, although it feels like you're trying to do everything all at the same time, the if you invest a little bit before you jump into a faculty position, it's going to make your life uh, a lot easier, I would imagine, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It's it's like a long-term investment thing. Absolutely. And, the, and in terms of the first steps there, oftentimes it's talking less and facilitating more. And there are lots of great advice pieces. James Lang is a wonderful author. He had a number of pieces in the Chronicle of Higher Education about the first five minutes of class, and then another series on the last five minutes of class. If you just change the first five minutes and the last five minutes of your class, that could be seriously transforming both in terms of building your teaching effectiveness, but also to have stories of examples of the ways in which you're doing what one of the things is called retrieval practice, helping them to build those neural connections in their brains. And to be able to articulate what that's been like for you in a teaching context will be very powerful. It's also going to build your skills to do that less talking, more facilitating. That's James Lang or Lane? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lang, L-A-N-G. And I'll find those and put those in the show notes for this episode for sure. And actually, I was just talking to someone, uh, another one of our guests this morning, and it's interesting that you mention listening more than, um, let's say, a one-way communication where you're just imagining you're throwing up slides and you're just putting information out there for the, the students to uptake. The person was talking about this idea, our, our guests for the episode before this, actually, talking about the idea of coaching. So thinking about the classroom as a coaching opportunity as opposed to an opportunity where you're you're just gonna like a brain dump on people, all right? Um, so and and I like this advice of taking you know just focusing on the first five minutes and the last five minutes because those are those things that feel very digestible and things that you can can work on as opposed to trying to rework an entire course. Yeah, James Lang also wrote a wonderful book called Small Teaching. And I really try to avoid making any sorts of sports references, but I'm going to do my best on this this first chapter. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, his first chapter is all about small ball. And I guess that's a thing that young kids do with their, um, as they're learning how to play baseball before they get to that point. And he, he shares that in terms of how we can do that with our teaching and have these little digestible, as you said, ways of improving our teaching. We don't have to rethink every single thing. We can just rethink a few key opportunities in a given class to really help um, transform our teaching. So that's a wonderful resource too, Small Teaching by James Lang. So going back to the two examples of postdocs, we kind of talked a little bit about uh, people that want to up their teaching effectiveness, but what about uh, people that want to grab a hold of the vocabulary piece? 
So what kind of resources do you recommend uh, for, for someone in that position? If they feel like, oh, okay, I have, I've gotten good teacher evaluations, uh, you know, I've gone through a couple of teaching a couple of courses or at least you know, helping teach a couple of courses, what, how can I get the get vocabulary down? Is that going to your website or is that, is it, you recommend another book or resource that, that those folks could look at? Well, I definitely think that reading the parts of the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed when they have articles about teaching can really help. I think listening to podcasts like yours, listening to podcasts like mine can be helpful in building that vocabulary. But even just to start with looking at what you do now, reflecting on that, what's really working in your classes. And of course, that can help a lot if you're asking your students what's really working for them in your teaching. And then putting a name to those things, oftentimes what you might find is they would fall under a broad umbrella of active learning. And active learning has been shown to be one of those effective practices in teaching. There's lots of research that backs that up. So that might be a broad area that you could map the effective practices you're doing now with things that are being researched about in the scholarship of teaching and learning. Another really big one is called retrieval practice. And retrieval practice, many times active learning is the broad umbrella. And then under that, we're doing retrieval practice. Instead of me doing what Paulo Freira described as the banking model of education, let me just put all these deposits and pour all this information into your brain and then have you pour it back out to me or make withdrawals from that brain deposit at some future date, that's that's not what I believe education is about. And many people would say that that's not really maximizing the potential that that student has. So instead, we can use less time with that banking model and do a lot more what's, re- what's called retrieval practice. So that is, instead of trying to dump all that information into their head, have them retrieving the information in the class and building those neural connections. And there is a wonderful website, retrieval practice.org and that is with Pooja Agarwald and she has a wonderful resource there with all these different research studies you can look at to show why retrieval practice is effective. It also has some articles to read and lots of examples of strategies you can use in your classroom. So that was retrievalpractice.org. And then the other thing I would just mention is that we talked, you, you mentioned lecture. Lectures aren't necessarily bad, but if a lecture contains an hour of me speaking the entire time, there isn't going to be as much retention as one might hope. And so we want to have more dynamic lecturing happening, and there's lots of ways to do that. But one of the things that is really starting to emerge in the literature is that especially for our first generation students, they will get a disproportionate positive benefit when we do things like active learning, when we do things like retrieval practice, and this is also known as culturally responsive teaching. We're allowing people to bring their context, bring their culture into the classroom. And we would refer to this as their prior learning. They get to bring my prior learning into the classroom and have the learning that's taking place be that much more meaningful to me. And being able to describe how your teaching approaches help a diverse body of students is going to help you regardless of what type of institution you're pursuing to be a professor at. 
that is interesting because I think a lot about this generational thing where, you know, you're, I, I feel like we live in a, we, no, I don't feel like it. I know we live in a society where people are the, the way that people are uptaking information is different than when I was in university or even in graduate school. Right. And so I, I like this idea of, um, dynamic lecturing in terms of trying to engage students where they're at, either whether or not they're coming from culturally diverse backgrounds or maybe just like, you know, a generationally diverse compared to you. So how have you seen, like, can you give an example of someone kind of changing the way that they're lecturing and, and maybe tweaking it toward a more dynamic model and how that's worked for them? Well, I, I, I'd love to speak about just a real change in orientation that I have. I think that my teaching, if you were to go back and look at it 15 years ago when I first got started, that my approaches may have been similar to what I do today, but my philosophy really, or my attitude would have been a lot different than it was sadly a little bit more about control. And today, I think a lot more in terms of invitations, inviting people to experience this learning. And an example of that would be regarding cell phones the or the laptop ban. And there's a lot of criticism that laptop bans can be discriminatory and that the cell phone bans the same way. And that it's not really helping think about diverse students in terms of learning disabilities or other cognitive challenges that would would make those devices beneficial to them. So instead of thinking about, you know, put those things away, <laughs> I think about, I invite you to put those things away because there's something on the other end of that that's really going to be pretty neat. So we're going to take these sticky notes out and I want you to write three things on the sticky note and then get up and it's, there's some research around getting up and moving around as contributing positively to our learning. So let's go over there on that whiteboard, list your three things that you think about that and, and getting them up and moving and using analog tools. And then I say, I invite you to pull your cell phones out and let's take a look at, let's do a poll everywhere quiz or let's, let's play this game. I love this Quizlet live game. Is a real <laughs> absolute hoot of a game that is so much fun. You've never seen so much life and energy and laughter and learning, but it becomes very little about me at that point. And very much about them in more of a collaborative learning environment. So to me, that change is profound. It also means that I trust my students more today, that, that they want to learn. That if given the invitation, they're going to be excited about the possibilities in their learning. And it, isn't, it doesn't have to be this transactional thing. Although I will say that transactional thing does have to be unlearned. It takes some effort, but it's absolutely possible and such a bigger joy to teach in that context. So is this Quizlet live? Is that an app or something? Qu Quizlet, yeah, Quizlet is a flashcard app. It's a website and, and apps on the phone. And once you have a deck of cards in there, they have some different games. Some of the games you can play just by yourself. And then some of the games are live in a group. So if you have at least four people, that means you can have two teams of two. And they can sort of compete against one, one another. And it's they get together. It mixes them up into groups. And then they're all sitting around in, in a group. And they're looking at each other's phones because only one of them has the correct answer on their phone. 
<laughs> and as they get things right, their team is a silly thing where they're like llamas and foxes and penguins and all this. Like their little icon is traveling across up on the projector. They can see themselves progressing and moving up. But if they get something wrong, it takes them all the way back to the beginning. So there's all this like groans. You can tell which team just went wah, 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 all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> I hope that sound plays, but if it doesn't, then it does in their heads for sure. Yeah, I sometimes turn the theme music down on those things because otherwise it carries with me for the rest of my day. But but I can't even remember if it does or not. I feel like maybe it does have some sound effects. Uh, yeah, well, you you have kids too, so you probably listen to like the same music over and over again. <laughs> well, the funny thing now is that my son just got so into Star Wars, and if you want to talk about music that will not get out of your head, just just pick one of the themes from the many Star Wars movies, and then. Um, but now also, Apple Music thinks that I love Star Wars. It's <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> no, that's not me. <laughs> you got to turn off the little setting that says like, mm-hmm. put this in my recommendations. <laughs> I got to figure that out. Absolutely. But that's, that's interesting. I think just going back to like learning and retention, how music, you know, sticks with you and how obviously there's something, there's something deep about the star Wars music that, that sticks with you and that you, it, it like your brain is just like, so maybe it makes sense to, you know, I mean, I'm getting on a tangent here, but maybe it makes sense to work music or sound effects into the classroom because it's it's sort of connected more deeply with the brain somehow. Yeah, I don't know, I'm just have, speculating here, but. I have played music in the background while students were working on projects and did have a student say that it was really distracting for him. Both he and I shared a real love for music. And so I totally knew what he meant when he said that because then your mind is thinking about the lyrics and oh that's such an amazing part we're going to get to this part of the song and and that it was hard for him to concentrate and so I I try to I have music playing when students come in and when they're leaving but I try not to do it too much when they're working on projects because if they've got a brain like mine they're not going to be thinking about the, the task at hand. So you play music when people come into the classroom and when they leave the classroom? Oh yeah I love it I love it and that it's fun because I connect a lot with students through music and they'll introduce me to new songs even after they graduate and stuff it's really fun to be curating all these different types of music that's fun (laughs) and then then the star wars theme shows up on your track right (laughs) (laughs) it's like the imperial march it's like okay what is this test day or (laughs) pop quiz yes (laughs) Hmm. well so i mean I, i think it's the, the all these um i guess more high level stuff is is very interesting but i i think if i'm putting my myself in the shoes of maybe not a postdoc now but maybe somebody just starting out right just somebody who's asked to teach their first course maybe they're developing a new course but you know they get behind and they're and, and you know obviously the best thing to do is just start early in developing course but what are some resources maybe out there for people that are like, you know, obviously it's not ideal to change a course midstream, but there are people out there doing that uh, and thinking about, okay, what this isn't working. How can you kind of evaluate? I mean, I know you have to create an entire like assessment of the course and what your objectives are and things like that, but how can you evaluate midstream and make changes because that's kind of the reality for some people, right? Is that they're just, they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants and maybe they can only make tweaks here or there. 
Um, any thoughts on what you would recommend to someone who came to you and say, I'm in the middle of this course, something isn't working. Obviously it depends on what's not working, but I'll stop asking my long winded question. (laughs) So I've been at this for 15 years and I still feel like I'm flying by the seat of my pants. So I do want to just say that as a word of comfort, there is definitely a tension between planning out our classes And then what emerges in the moment. And one of the things I did for a number of years was teach three sections of the same class during each semester. And I did that for probably a total of five years, maybe not quite that long, but it it was quite a while. (laughs) And it is remarkable when you do that, how vastly different each class is. I would try, I stopped, by the way, stopped trying to have it where I would mark where in the PowerPoint slide deck each class started, because you just imagine the complexity with that, where it's like, well, this one started, and we stopped on slide 18, so I'm going to start there, and then this one, it's just like, no, 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 no. Have big questions, one big question you're going to explore in a given time frame, so it's an hour 15, however long your class is, and have a few points that you want to get to but a few exercises that would help to reinforce that point. It's really quick to put together a series of questions on poll everywhere. It's really quick to put together flashcards in Quizlet, like I was mentioning. It's really quick to put together a Padlet. Padlet is like a virtual cork board that's sitting up there that students can digitally pin things to. So in one class, I was teaching a consumer behavior class, and we were looking at microcultures. And I had, okay, this group, you go look at this microculture, you go look at this microculture, and they were finding videos and images and music and articles, and they could just pin them up there digitally with their cell phones. So I wouldn't over plan. In fact, there is an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education about not over planning for your course. I can't remember who the author was, but if you search the Chronicle for over plan course, you'll probably find it. And if you can, I'll be happy to send you a link to it. I'll I'll find it if you can't. But that's really good advice because the time that you spend over planning, you can't ever get it back. But if you have done an exercise that you didn't quite get to in that session, perhaps that's the perfect thing to start the next class out in. And you don't want to try to map out every word of every bullet you're going to say because you're forgetting the people who are going to show up. And that they're going to get curious about things you didn't anticipate. Hopefully, they're going to ask questions that you didn't anticipate. And I actually want to just go on a quick tangent around questions. Because this is a a real stumbling block for a lot of new teachers. They start out and they're with, this is their first class or early in their teaching. And they say, does anyone have any questions? Or who can tell me what the answer to this is? And they wait two seconds and they answer the question because they're so uncomfortable by the silence. I invite everyone to try something out called the eight-second rule. The eight-second rule is that you ask a question and you count. One, 1,000. Two, 1,000. And I'm not going to count the whole way because it already seems long to me, but it will seem like an incredibly long time, but not to the learner because they have to take your question in They have to go retrieve that. They have to like digest it, retrieve the information. And then there's that space and time. They have to decide, is this safe for me to answer and possibly be wrong? 
So the eight second rule, by the way, you won't have to do that every time, but you're conditioning them. I actually want to know what you think. And don't say, does anyone have a question? Say, who here has the first question? And then wait till you're eight seconds. You're, you're training them, but you're also training yourself to listen longer. Yep. And that's what the eight seconds are all about because you're busy counting. And it and, will feel like forever the first time you do it. And then you'll start to realize the power of it and it will feel like a very powerful thing. Very cool. And I like the phrasing, who here has the first question? Because you're, you're basically assuming, you're, you're prompting them and saying, there is going to be a question. <laughs> so, yeah, and that matters so much. And I don't do that, by the way, every day in class. But if I feel like we've just gotten something, there might be some questions out there. I'm getting the furrowed brows. Then I will stop. But but I think you can get repetitive like that. Speaking of Americans and what we like to do, we like to say, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? And you know that you you run into someone like, hey, I'm fine. How are you? And you're thinking, I didn't even ask you how you were. (laughs) You're already telling me. So we don't want to be repetitive with things like that. But it can be a really powerful tool to use that. That who here has the first question. Yeah, because if you're if you're if you're repeating yourself, then it just becomes kind of like background, right? Exactly. And it's not mm-hmm. it's not. I should sit up and pay attention to this. Yeah. <laughs> you really want to mix it up in your teaching and have there be surprises. I remember a guy came into one of my classes when we were earning our doctorates and had something in a paper bag up in the front of the room, and he's talking, and the whole time you're going, "What's what's in the paper bag? I wonder what's in there." Like the, just that element of bringing something mysterious. And my husband tells the story of being in high school and his chemistry teacher talking about the, it was the first day of class talking about how chemistry is never what it seems. And then he he's, goes to the front of the room. He lights a candle, one of those tea light candles up at the front and he's going on he shares a little bit about chemistry and what the class is going to be like. And then he goes back to the front of the room as they're ending and says, remember chemistry is never what it seems. And he picks up the candle and he pops it in his mouth and he chews it and swallows it and walks out of the room. Wow. And they're going, this class is going to be cool. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so awesome. I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued now. What that? Yeah, I actually, I had a clip of Dave, my husband, sharing that story and I shared it a number of places (laughs) and was like wild eyed with the mystery of this, of this magic, you know, in my mind. And someone afterward comes up to me and says, you do realize that's just a Google search away how to do that, like how the guy actually <laughs> accomplished that feat. And my husband was like, don't you dare tell me. I want to be I want to be left with the mystery of it all. But I can't say it involves a banana and some kind of a nut. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> well, you know, that that is an interesting point, like a broader point, which is thinking, and I think this goes back to your point about the five, first five minutes, last five minutes connects with that pretty well, right? Because that's the first five minutes, not even the first five minutes, first minute, you're, you're kind of prompting something and people are like, what's going on? And then you, you kind of close in the last five minutes. And although all information is searchable on Google at this point, or most of it, um, that, you know, you can always find those little things like that, that are intriguing that, you know, maybe one person has seen it before or, you know, but those are, that's just like a little bit of extra work, but no one is ever going to forget that ever. Right. And if you can connect that back with the content, that's beautiful. One of the other things I love to do, you were talking about developing new courses and us feeling like we're always flying by the seat of our pants. One exercise that I do 
in lots of different ways are sorting exercises. So when I taught introduction to business there, they would get an envelope and it would have all these different concepts that we would talk about. Because we think about the, the knowledge frameworks that we have in our brains as experts in any given topic and how easy it is for us to add new information because the map of knowledge is already there. So, oh, that fits under, that's a type of economic system. And, oh, that, that actually fits over here with the types of competition. But if you don't have that yet, then having a sorting exercises with those concepts that they can sort out, oh, this is, these are types of competition and then sorting them all, little slips of paper, I'll give them on their desk and they'll sort them all out. Or I taught a, another class that had a, a practice of a weekly review and they had to sort what's the order you're going to do things and then what's the step that you'll take under each one of these practices. And it really helped me see where there were parts of things they didn't understand yet and they weren't going to be able to do it necessarily in the order that was going to be most effective. I could see where those questions were because they were all visible and out there. That's really helpful. What do you see, what's like the most common mistake you're seeing from teachers and higher eds, like that, that, that people are just making things harder than they need to make it, right? People are coming at it with their best intentions, but they're doing things, they're, maybe there's one practice, two practices, people are just m- making the hill too steep for themselves, and really there's, there's a better way. One one thing that comes to mind, and this is certainly not my area of expertise, but I've talked to the experts, but one thing that comes to mind is grading. And people spend so much time in the detailed micro, micro, and micro levels of grading, correcting every single grammatical error, every comma, every grammatical error on a paper, and there being absolutely no incentive or motivation, or even really opportunities for learning for a student to go back there and take a look. So if this is the final time a student is submitting a paper, first of all, it's just not a good use of your time if you're not going to have them revise it to spend all the time doing that. But also the, those that are the experts in teaching writing say that helping to identify the patterns that exist is going to be a far greater positive impact on our time than every single error being caught. That oftentimes the labor involved in writing, in problem solving, in doing the work is going to be a far greater learning experience than them going back and looking at every single correction that we had on something. So I see people wasting time giving that much feedback and there's no additional opportunity for a student to turn that in again. And also, even if there was an opportunity, that correcting every single mistake isn't actually going to be the best use of our time anyway. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you. I work at a university, and I can't tell you how many piles of graded things I just see laying around places that don't get picked up and never get picked up. And it's because it's the last last graded assignment or something, and you see marks all over it, and you're thinking, yeah, somebody spent time on that, but... It's not, that's, that's a great, great advice. And actually building on that idea, um, this is a very pragmatic question, but how, how have you seen people in terms of grading tests, exercises, how have you seen people make it so that, uh, they avoid the situation where students are getting less than ideal 
learning because they're passing around quizzes from previous years or tests or other written materials. And they're, but the professor or the teacher doesn't want to have to redo everything from scratch. How have you seen people solve that problem where you're trying to idealize the students learning? So they're not just like, Oh yeah, this is the same quiz as last year, but also not making it so that they have to reinvent the wheel every year. One of the things that comes to my mind often is, is a test really the right way to assess this particular learning? So that's the first thing that I think about is just, we spend so much time on multiple choice and true, false, fill in the blank questions when so many times that actually isn't the best way to assess someone's learning. That being said, there are some times when I use it, especially building up a student's vocabulary. If it's an introduction to business class, principles of marketing, there are going to be those times when I use those modes of assessment. And by the way, there's some really good people. It's got a couple of people who wrote a book on how to write good multiple choice questions. So they certainly can be written well and better than I used to. Let's just say that. So it's not like you can't write good ones. But I think if you're going to put something like that together, then have a bank of questions and have that bank of questions be used to in terms of review for that retrieval practice that I talked about. And then you can take from that bank of questions and have that as part of your test as well. I do not use the same test every time. I often, by the way, today am erring less on the side of even giving tests because in my particular discipline and the topics I'm teaching, it's not always the best way. But when it is, then I'm using a bank of questions. That test is different every time. And I like to have an opportunity for people in the industry in the industry that I, in the business world, I'm trying to grow them up into, take a look at those tests and see, are these the kinds of questions that you want your future employees to be able to answer for you and to be regularly getting feedback on what I'm developing and seeing, am I losing context of what's actually needed out there? And that's been a really helpful practice for me as well. I love that idea because I work with a research center where we, work with industry members and engaging the industry members on the sort of a workforce development element of the center. It's, it's interesting to think about, Oh yeah, we could actually think about how you could look at test or not test materials necessarily, but course materials and say, does this, does this look like something that would line up with, you know, when someone graduates, this would be helpful for them? I mean, of course you can't do it perfectly, but it's, it's a new perspective that gives you some sort of fresh ideas about how to uh, approach testing to, or not, not necessarily just testing, but uh, assessing the skill sets that might be needed, even in a graduate program where, you know, part of this, the graduates are going to go on to research and um, maybe faculty positions. And then a, a good piece of those were also will also go on to industry positions. So that's an interesting idea that I'll probably take back to our education team. Well, the other thing, if you really want to just magnify the power of this even more, have those industry professionals engaged in some kind of a project with the students that the project would look at problems that they're facing and infuse those into the class and then invite them in to give the students feedback. If you ever want to boost students' motivation, 
take the grade away or put it to the side and open up the classroom walls a bit, like Shakespeare, you know, the breaking down the fourth wall <laughs> and, and allowing those people to come in and interact with the students and see the ideas that they have about how to solve these problems. That is going to have, at least in my experience, the students are no longer motivated about the grade or not, you know, as the case may be. But wow, I get this opportunity to meet with people that are in the kinds of jobs or fields or companies that I want to do when I graduate. And I get to build some relationships and get some feedback like that. It's incredibly powerful. So I'm, I'm cognizant of the time we have together. And I wonder if you had uh, maybe something we didn't cover that would be important for an early career researcher to hear about the, the, uh, the areas of, of teaching and and teaching in higher ed that maybe we didn't cover on the show today? The only thing that I'm thinking about is that a lot of times in academia, I have noticed at least myself struggle with and other people I'm close with that there's sort of this thing with doing it the way everybody else is doing it. You go to a conference and you present your research paper and you present it the way that you saw everybody else presenting it. And you go and you teach and you teach the way that you saw everybody else teaching and you go to approach some sort of grant or some sort of writing, and you kind of follow those social norms. And I would say that that is a safe way to go, but it can also be rather soul-crushing. And that I think that you can really bring a lot of life to your students, a lot of life to your colleagues, and, and pursue grant opportunities you didn't even think were possible when you're willing to break some of those social norms and be more authentically you. And what I mean by that, too, is that if you're not extroverted, don't try to be this theatrical presence, charismatic presence in a classroom. Lean more into how you might bring that introversion into the classroom. It's going to be a lot easier for you, by the way, to talk less and get the students engaged more so you can leverage that strength. And for me, I'm not a super serious person. I like to laugh. I think that humor is fun. And so I don't have to hide that just because other people aren't doing that. And and I have found that to be useful, both in terms of just practically, I think I'm a better teacher for it. But I also think I just show up better when I don't try to do the same stuff everybody else is doing, but be willing to do something with a little bit of a unique spin on it. Yeah. And I think it helps so that you're not, if if you're, if you're really teaching in an authentic way, like to, like you said, if you're an introvert, for example, you're, then you're not dreading feeling like you have to go on stage, which is like <laughs> the worst nightmare for an introvert, right? And there's definitely a good portion of scientists and engineers that are, are, are introverts. So that's great advice uh, to finish up with. Now, Bonnie, where can people go to find out more about you, your podcast, uh, you know, teaching in higher ed? The, the site to visit is teachinginhighered.com. But if you already listen to podcasts, or you probably even, by the way, have a podcast app on your phone without even realizing it, is to go do a search for Teaching in Higher Ed on whatever podcast platform it is that you use. That will get you subscribed to the weekly episodes. I also have a weekly update that I send out that has the show notes from the prior week's podcast, as well as an article on teaching or productivity. And you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com. There's a little subscribe box right on the homepage. And it looks like you're on Twitter at T-I-H-I-G-H-E-R-E-D. 
Yep, TI as in teaching in, higher ed as in higher education. I'm also at B-O-N-N-I-208. Yes, and, and I would encourage the listeners to, to say thanks to, to Bonnie for be, joining us on the show today and connect with the wonderful resources that she has both on her website and, and it looks like very active, uh, well, somewhat active, it looks like Twitter feeds. So thank you, Bonnie, for joining us today. Matt, thanks so much for having me on the show. It was an honor to be here. Hey, Team Helium, a couple things before you go. My biggest takeaway from that episode was the eight-second rule. So I think that this eight-second rule could not only be applied in the classroom, but outside the classroom. And that means any meeting or group that you're in where you're trying to draw out information from folks, you need to wait just a little bit longer to try to get everyone's response and perhaps come to a better answer. And this is related to some of the work that Christine and I do with uh, research teams. It really does depend on those introverts speaking up. And so if you take a little bit longer to sit there and wait for those introverts to speak up, sometimes you'll get to a better place, whether that is in the classroom or in a team setting. So that was my biggest takeaway from this episode. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 30. You can come by and say hi to us on Twitter at Helium Podcast or on Instagram at Helium Pod. We really appreciate you out there listening to the show and giving us feedback. Our next episode will feature a technology in the classroom expert. So if you're interested in that, please download and subscribe to the podcast. We really pick her brain about the technology she's seen be successful in the classroom. And certainly this is a developing area that as an early career researcher, it's helpful to stay on top of some of those tools that are helping people learn in the classroom. As always, the episode music was provided by Michael Blake at mblakemusic.com. This episode was edited by me, Matt Hotze, and produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Until next time, we wish you the best of luck in leading and elevating your research efforts.